Tonight's subject is a very important one, and unfortunately our slides are not working properly, and so uh, just please join us in praying that uh, our friends in the back can figure out what the issue is and get it solved uh, so that we can see some of the illustrations we have for tonight. Otherwise, we just go straight from God's Word and, and uh, use the imaginations that the Lord has given to us. And so please bow your heads with me and let us begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much for your great love and mercy. Thank you so much, Lord, for giving us life today and the beautiful day you've blessed us with. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being here at the Revelation of Hope Seminar where we get to learn the wonderful truths of the Bible. And Lord, we understand that this is a spiritual book and that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So we pray, dear God, that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher tonight that you'd remove every demonic distraction, that you would give to us clarity of thought, give to me clarity of speech. Help us not only to understand your message, but I pray, Father, that your word will inspire faith in us and a great hope for your soon return. So please speak to us now, Lord, as we study. In, and I, Lord, we also want to lift up the technology and the, the slides. We pray that if that's your will, that you'd uh, help Give wisdom to our friends to be able to find out the problem and, and uh, be able to fix it. But Lord, ble please be with us, and we thank you for hearing this prayer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Our message tonight is Revelation's Night in Shining Armor, The Secret About the Secret Rapture. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 12 as we begin our study tonight. And as you're turning there, let me quickly tell you where we got this title from. What is this knight in shining armor that we are referring to? Well, the knight in shining armor is basically a heroic character that's found in lots of uh, literature that's based in the medieval era. And these knights were characterized as courageous warriors of justice and mercy and nobility and honor. And they would go out on quests to defeat dragons and monsters in order to save the damsel that is in distress. Many heroic deeds were done by these knights to win the favor of a specific lady. But tonight, friends, we're not going to talk about fix, fictional fantasies, but rather the true biblical story of Revelation's knight in shining armor. And we will learn tonight that the book of Revelation is indeed a love story between Jesus and his bride. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 12 and verse 13. We read this the other night, and we were introduced to these biblical characters of prophecy, and I want us to notice the, it once again. Revelation 12, verse 13, if you're there, if you're ready to study, would you please say amen? And I encourage you, make sure you write down every single scripture. The Bible says, and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And so here we find the description of a dragon that's persecuting a woman. And then in verse 17 it says again, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here we read again in prophetic language. A terrible monster, a dragon that is so filled with anger and rage, he's attacking, persecuting, and making war with a woman. Now, what does this mean? 
We don't have to guess because the Bible is its own interpreter. In verse 9 of Revelation 12, we know that the dragon is none other than who? Remind me. It is Satan. And who is the woman in prophecy? The woman represents the church. We saw that last night. And if you were not here last night, let me quickly give you the references so you can write it down. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2. And many other passages make it plain that in a prophetic symbolic context, a woman is a symbol of the church or the people of God. And so when you find the dragon attacking the woman, it represents how Satan is angry at God's church, his beloved bride, those who are faithful to Jesus. And friends, the woman by herself doesn't stand the chance against the dragon. You see, we are no match for Satan, friends. But thank God that we have a knight in shining armor that comes to our rescue. And he is described in the 19th chapter of Revelation. So please take your Bible and let's go to Revelation 19. Notice what it says beginning with verse 11. Revelation 19 and verse 11 it says, And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called, what is his name? The Word of God. My friends, here is the knight in shining armor coming to rescue the woman from the attacks of the dragon. This, my friends, is describing the majesty of the heavens. John sees the heavens open and a, 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 a kingly rider riding on a white horse galloping across the sky. His eyes are like fire, which represents the fact that he has penetrating discernment, which makes him a righteous and just judge. He is also a kingly warrior, a warrior that is coming to rescue the bride from the attacks of the enemy. Bible says that his name is the Word of God. Tell me, friends, who is this Word of God riding on this white horse? It's none other than King Jesus. For the Bible says in John chapter 1, verses 1 and on, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then John 1 verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Here is, my friends, the picture of King Jesus coming back at the second time. Amen? Now, when it describes Jesus returning the second time on a white horse, it's not because He's literally coming back on a literal white horse. But rather, the symbol is, is plain. You see, back in these times, whenever a king would ride to a specific place on a white horse, it, represent the, it represented the fact that that king was coming as a righteous king, a triumphant king, a conquering king. And that's how Jesus will return. You see, this world, planet Earth, has been hijacked by the dragon, hijacked by Satan, and the true king is going to come to conquer and claim it back. You see, when Jesus came the first time, he came as a humble babe and as a suffering servant. He came to lay down his life for the sins of humanity. 
When he rode into Jerusalem that first time, he rode on a donkey. Symbolized that he was a meek and lowly king. But when he returns the second time, he's not coming on a donkey, but on a white horse because he's coming as the righteous, triumphant, conquering king of kings and lord of lords. And that's exciting. And when he comes, he's not coming by himself. For notice what it says in verse 14. It says, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress in the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, what is his name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Here is the description of, the, of Revelation's knight in shining armor, King Jesus, coming back the second time to, oh, praise the Lord, amen? There's the picture. <laughs> and you also see the picture right here. But I was in India a few years ago. We, had, we got invited to do some meetings there. And on our last day in India, we were driving through the crowded streets of Delhi, going to the airport, and I saw a big commotion on the side of the road. And I took this picture of a man riding on a white horse. I didn't know what was taking place, so I asked the driver. You know what he said? He told me that that man riding on that white horse was a husband going to pick up his bride. And friends, that's what we see in Revelation 19. Jesus is not only coming as the righteous, triumphant, conquering king, but he's also coming as a lovesick king, coming to be with his church, to be with you and with me, to rescue us and take us to our heavenly home. You see, friends, the book of Revelation is a love story between Jesus and his church. And when we study this book in that context, it ceases to be a scary book, but it's an exciting book. It is truly a love story. And friends, when Jesus returns, I want you to notice what is going to happen to the attackers of the bride. Notice verse 19. Revelation 19, now verse 19, it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And it says, the beast was taken. The beast was what? I want you to remember that word taken. It's very important for our study tonight. The Bible says when Jesus returns, that the beast was taken. And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worship his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So notice the beast, the false prophet, the, the, the enemies of the bride are taken and they're destroyed. And then it says in verse uh, 21, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And friends, that's very graphic. Bible tells us that when Jesus comes, that the enemies of the bride and the enemies of the Lord are going to be taken, they're going to be destroyed, and it says that the fowls will feast upon their flesh. In fact, notice in verses 17 and 18, it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the what? The supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. My friends, when Jesus returns, the Bible describes what we call the feast of the fowls. 
It's the wicked that are going to be destroyed. And then the Bible says that the fowls will begin to feast upon their carcasses. Now, that's very graphic language. But at the same time when Jesus returns, there's another great feast that takes place too. And that, this feast is the one that we want to be a part of. It's described in verse 7 through 9. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's read Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Friends, remind me, who is the lamb? That's Jesus. And who is the wife? That's the church, friends. And the Bible says that when Jesus returns, that's when the wedding day, that's when the husband, and, that's when the bride and the groom see each other face to face. That's when the veil is removed and we see our God face to face. It says that the, that the marriage of the lamb has come. The wife is ready. Then verse 10, it says, excuse me, verse 8, it says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. I want you to notice that which makes the bride ready for her wedding day is the fact that she's wearing the wedding dress. It was granted to her. In other words, it's, it wasn't something that she she tailored herself. It's something that was given as a gift from Jesus. You see, that wedding dress is the righteousness of Christ imputed and imparted to us. And then it says in verse 9, And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So when Jesus comes, according to Revelation 19, there are two great feasts that commence. And every single person, every one of us, will be a part of one of these two feasts. Either we're going to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, or we're going to be a part of the feast of the fowls. And you can decide which one you want to be a part of. But for me, it's a no-brainer. I want to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. How about you, amen? You see, if we're a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to be the main guest. But friends, if we're part of the feast of the fowls, we're not going to be the main guest. We're going to be the main chorus. <laughs> and friends, I don't want any buzzard picking on me. I'm so grateful that it is possible for every single one of us to be a part of that great marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus has provided the wedding dress for each one of us to wear. And if you want to be a part of that wedding, if you want to be a part of that great banquet, let me hear you say amen. And so, when Jesus came the first time, it was to offer the human race a proposal. When he comes the second time, it's actually to marry. It's the wedding day. You see, when Jesus came the first time, he came to demonstrate through his words and most of all through his life and his death just how committed he is to you and to me. And on the cross, he was basically saying to the human race, this is how much I love you. This is how valuable you are to me. This is the great length I would go to win your sinful heart. And he's basically saying, will you be my bride? And for those who re receive that marriage proposal, he's going to come back the second time for the wedding day. Yes, my friends, the Bible and the book of Revelation is a love story between Jesus and his church. Amen. By the way, the Lord Jesus is not coming for a bride that has other lovers. He's not coming for a woman that is flirting around still with the devil. He's coming for a bride that is ready to commit fully to him, 
ready to live with him in his father's house throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. It's a love story that Jesus wants to be with us. We are, we are the apple of his eye. There's nothing divinity desires more than fellowship with you and me, with humanity. And if you're thankful for that, would you please say amen. My friends, the Bible calls this the blessed hope. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, write it down. It says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. My friends, the second coming of Christ, the end of time, is not something we should be afraid of. Tragically and unfortunately, there are so many people that, that talk about the end of time and the return of Jesus with a sense of doom and gloom. But no, friends, it is something that we ought to look forward to with great joy and anticipation without any fear as long as we love Jesus. Because the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Amen? It's the wedding day. And whenever two individuals are coming together to, to get married... Normally, they look forward to their wedding day. Isn't that right? If they're truly in love, they can't wait for that day to take place. It's the same thing with those who love Jesus. We can't wait to see Him face to face. And so, let's pray that the Lord will make us ready for the wedding day. How many want to be ready for the wedding day? Amen? But friends, when Jesus gave the promise of His return, He also gave strong warnings about it as well. And he warned us that Satan, that terrible dragon, is going to do all he can to stop the bride from being ready for the wedding day. And notice what Jesus said. Matthew 24, verse 4 and 5. Jesus warned us and he said, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Jesus warned us that in the last days there will be false Christs and false prophets. And so he tells us to beware, to take heed, make sure that we're not deceived by a false Christ claiming to be the real one. And then Jesus got even more specific, and he even revealed to us what some people would be saying about his return. And notice what he said in verse 26, Matthew 24, verse 26. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the where? Desert, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the, what? Secret chambers. What do we do? We believe it not. You see, Jesus looking down towards the end of time. He saw that there would be individuals influenced by the enemy that would be saying the wrong thing about how the Messiah was returning. And so Jesus says, if they say to you that I'm in the desert, don't go there. Or if I'm returned and I'm in some kind of secret chambers, don't you believe it. My friends, it might be a surprise to some of us that for many people, the second coming of Christ will come upon them as an overwhelming surprise. Many people will not be ready for the return of Jesus. They're not going to be ready for the wedding day. Why? For the same reason why many people were not ready for the first coming of Jesus. You realize, friends, that when Jesus came the first time, most religious people were not ready for it. Bible says he came to his own and his own received them not. Why was it that many religious people were not ready for the first coming? Here's the reason. While the church was waiting for the coming of Messiah 
anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the scribes and Pharisees and religious scholars of the day, they were teaching the wrong thing about how the Messiah would come. They taught that he would come, but they taught the wrong thing about the manner of his coming or how he would come. They thought that he was going to come as an earthly deliverer to set up an earthly kingdom and give them earthly glory. They had misinterpreted the scriptures. And many of the church members, instead of studying the scriptures for themselves, they were being spoon-fed by the ministers, the scholars, and the theologians. But the tragedy was is that the theologians were wrong. And that's why when Jesus came the first time, most people were not ready. And let me tell you, friends, history is being repeated today. Many people, many religious people will not be ready for the second coming of Christ for the same reason. Why? Because, let me tell you, majority of the Christian world believes that Jesus is returning. But many in the religious Christian world is teaching the wrong thing about how Jesus is returning. And many church members, instead of studying the Bible for themselves, are just going by what the popular theologians are saying. And friends, as a result, the devil will will cause many people to be deceived. And that's the reason why, friends, it's so important for us to study to show ourselves the proofs unto God. That's why it's so important that we're not accustomed to simply being spoon-fed by the minister once a week when we go to church. We got to study God's word for ourselves to know what truth is. Can you say amen? We got to go to the source. We, We shouldn't just read books about the Bible. We need to read the Bible, friends. And the Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher of all. Amen? As I told you before, friends, you can't trust me unless what I say is backed up by thus saith the Lord. And it is written. Last person you should ever trust is a preacher. Too, much, too many people put confidence in man. And when, and when man falls, they fall too. Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lead not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct thy paths. Amen? And so, because of that, tonight we want to find out the answer to this question. How is Jesus coming back? We know that he's coming. The prophecies are pointing to that reality, and we'll study more prophecies in the future that show us even more clearly that we're living in the last days. But the question is, how is he coming back? Well, let me just ask you, do you think it's important to know how he's coming back? How important do you think that is? My friends, it could be a matter for eternity. Because if we do not know exactly how he's coming, we could be very well duped by a false Christ, thinking that it's the real deal. And for that reason, we want to share with you five truths about how the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to return the second time. Five truths. How many? And I hope you write them down. We're going to go through them one by one. Truth number one about the return of Jesus is that it's going to be a literal and a personal event. It's not some type of mystical or spiritualistic coming. It's a real, literal, personal coming. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, the Bible says, and this is referring to when Jesus was ascending back to the heavens after the resurrection. Acts 1, verse 9 through 11, write it down. Notice with me on the screen. It says, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld... He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And then it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, 
Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come, how? In like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So my friends, this was a literal and personal event. Jesus was literally there. He was personally there. And as he went up into the heavens, the angel says, that same Jesus that you saw go up is going to come back in like manner. In other words, it's literal. Just like creation and the cross were literal events, so too is the return of King Jesus. The angel said, this same Jesus. In other words, Christ is not going to send emissaries to pick us up. He himself is coming for his bride. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, the, tr the second truth about the return of Jesus is also another simple one. It's going to be a visible coming. We will be able to see it when it happens. The Bible says in Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, he comes with clouds, and how many eyes shall see him? It says every eye shall see him. There is no secret about the return of Christ. When it happens, no one is going to have to tell you about it. You're going to see it with your own eye, friend. Every eye shall see him. Here's another one. Matthew 16, verse 27. It says, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. So the Bible says that he's not only coming by himself. He's coming with the glory of his Father. And he's coming with all the angels. And that's not something you're going to be able to sleep through, friends. It's something that you will see. It's going to, if you're sleeping during that time, you're going to wake up. I mean, think about it. Do you remember when that one angel came and removed that heavy stone from the tomb of Jesus? The glory, the power, the brilliance, the brightness of that one angel was so dramatic, potent, and powerful that it caused the ground to shake. It caused that heavy stone to roll back like a pebble, and it caused those burly Roman soldiers to fall back like dead men. Now think about it. If the glory and power of one angel can have such an effect, can you imagine the glory, the brightness, and the power of every angel in heaven? That's going to be amazing. Amen? Oh, I want to be ready for this day. That's all the armies of heaven joining King Jesus when he turns the second time. You see, the angels are interested in our salvation too. It's amazing. And so the return of Christ is, number one, literal and personal. Number two, it's visible. And number three, it's audible. Not only will every eye see it, but every ear will hear it when it takes place. Bible says in Psalms 50 and verse 3, Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about. When Jesus returns the second time, He's not going to sneak into town, friends. He's not going to keep silent. It's going to be so loud. I want you to notice the loudest scripture in the Bible is a scripture referring to the return of Jesus. You will not find a scripture louder than this, friends. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Please write it down. Oh, this is a beautiful scripture. You ought to memorize it if you've not done so yet. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17 says this. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a... Shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall what? Rise first, my friends. The return of Jesus is going to be so loud that those who are sleeping in the graves are going to wake up. Even the dead will wake up, friends. That's how loud the return of Jesus is. 
The angels will be singing, the trumpet will blast, and the Lord will shout, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, those of us who live in the last days, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. My friends, that's a beautiful, beautiful truth. When the Lord Jesus returns the second time, every eye will see it. Every ear is going to hear it. It's going to be so loud that the graves are going to burst open like popcorn popping on a hot stove. And the dead are going to shoot up out of those graves. And we're going to ascend to meet Jesus in the air. And that's why Jesus said, if they say I'm in the desert, do not go there. Or in the secret chambers, don't believe it. Because when he returns the second time, he's not going to step foot on the earth. We're going to meet him in the air. And friends, it's on that day that families that have been separated by death, are going to be reunited in life, never to be separated again. Babies who have died in infancy will be placed back into their parents' arms. Some of you have lost loved ones, and your heart is broken. Death is a terrible thing that God never intended for us to experience. But one day soon, very soon, death itself is going to die. And be swaddled up in life. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 and 53, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. It's then that we'll receive a brand new immortal incorruptible body. No more cancer, no more diabetes, no more aches and pains, no more headaches and heartaches, no more asthma or arthritis or osteoporosis or multiple sclerosis or scoliosis or all of these other osises. <laughs> those of you with eyeglasses, you won't need those anymore. You can throw them away. Jesus will give you new eyes, hearing aids, not unnecessary. You will hear the sweet voice of Jesus. No more wheelchairs or walkers, no more wrinkles or gray hairs or growing old, no more young people, no more pimples and blemishes on the face, a brand new body. You know, sometimes, friends, we look into the mirror and we don't really like what we see, but when we all get to heaven and look in the mirror, oh, we're going to like what we see, amen? How many of you are looking forward to your new body? Oh, what a day that will be when our Jesus we shall see, when we look upon his face, the one that has saved us by his grace. And he takes us by the hand and leads us to the promised land. Oh, what a day. What a glorious day that's going to be. And it won't be long, friends. It won't be long. Jesus is coming again. Don't be afraid. Rejoice with exceeding joy. For our knight in shining armor is coming soon to rescue us from this crazy, chaotic planet. And so let's get ready for the wedding day. Amen? And so we see that the return of Jesus is literal, it's personal, it's visible, it's audible. And then truth number four that I want to share tonight, it's a decisive event. What I mean by that is that the destiny of man is forever decided. When Jesus comes, that's it. Probation is closed. And some people question this truth. Because the popular teaching in the world today is, is that when Jesus comes and people are not ready, those who are not ready are going to have a second chance. 
The popular opinion in the world today is that when Jesus comes, it's going to be a secret rapture. He's going to take his church secretly and silently from this world. Their clothes will be there on the ground. And those who are not ready for the secret rapture will stay in this world for, for another seven years in the which they'll experience great tribulation. But during that time, they will have a second chance, another opportunity to be ready for the return of Jesus again at the end of the seven years. And this is the popular teaching in the world today. But friends, from what we've already read from the scriptures, does the second coming of Christ sound secret to you? My friends, it's anything but secret. And so where does this idea of a second chance or a secret rapture actually come from? Well, friends, that which has popularized it in recent times is the series, the Left Behind series. It's a series of books written by individuals that uh, in story format, they talk about end time events. They talk about the return of Jesus. And one of the main teachings in this series of books is that when Jesus returns, it's secretly and silently. He's going to rapture his church secretly, and those who are left behind will go through a seven-year tribulationary period, and they get, they'll get another chance. And they, it's taught in that series that an atheistic antichrist will sit in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, making a covenant with the Jews, causing the sacrifices to cease. And it's a very successful series of How many of you have read or have seen these series of books before? It's very, very popular. And while it may make for interesting reading... It makes for dangerous theology, friends. And this might come as a surprise to you. But we're going to see this evening from God's Word that the main teachings taught in the Left Behind series and modern, ev modern evangelical eschatology has no biblical foundation. But rather it comes from a surface reading of the Bible and an inconsistent faulty method of biblical hermeneutics that was actually invented by a Jesuit priest by the name of Francisco Rivera in the 16th century during the Council of Trent. And if I speak strongly against it, it's only because the Lord loves us and he does not want us to be deceived or confused. Remember, friends, in order to know what the truth really is, we got to go to the source, not what other people say about the Bible, but what the Bible says about itself. Can you say amen? I remember, friends, the Bible interprets itself. I'm not going to give you my interpretation because it doesn't matter what I think. We let the Bible speak for itself. And we don't stand in judgment upon anyone who has read these books or those who have written these books. I believe that those who have read it, those who have written it, are sincere people. I believe that many of them love God and they're sincere and they're wanting to do the right thing. But here's the thing we must remember, friends. We can be sincerely mistaken sometimes. So listen, we don't stand in judgment upon anyone's personal relationship with God. God is the judge of the heart. But the, Jesus did say, you shall know them by their fruits. Now, we don't know the root of a person's motive or intention, but we are instructed to examine the fruit. What is the theology like? And we can compare it with the Bible to see if it's biblical or if it is not. And that's basically what we want to do right now. Friends, I want to share with you something very important. For every truth that God has, Satan has invented a counterfeit. You know what a counterfeit is? A counterfeit is something that looks real, seems real, sounds real, but it's what? It's fake. 
And for every single truth in God's word, Satan, who is a master deceiver, has invented a counterfeit truth. Not a 100% lie, but a mixture of truth and error together. Let me ask you a question. Has, have you ever seen a counterfeit $13 bill? Is there any such thing as a counterfeit $13 bill? Yes or no? Would anyone in their right mind ever be deceived by a counterfeit $13 bill? Of course not. Why? Because there's no genuine $13 bill. But are there counterfeit 20s? Counterfeit 100s? You see, the point is this. That Satan is not going to counterfeit something that's not real because most people won't fall for that. But he will take something that is real, that is truth, and he will copy it and counterfeit it. And most people who are just surface readers will not be able to discern the difference between the genuine and the counterfeit. And friends, one of the greatest counterfeits the enemy has ever invented of the truth of the second coming of Christ is this secret rapture left behind theory. Remember the warning of Jesus. He said, if, if they say, behold, he's in the secret chambers, what do we do? He said, don't believe it, friends. Now, you'll, you might be shocked to realize that the word rapture isn't even found in the Bible. Much less is a secret rapture found in the Bible. It's not there, friends. Now, while the word rapture isn't found in the Bible, the idea of a rapture is. Because the word rapture simply means a catching up or a snatching away. And yes, there's going to be a rapture, friends. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But it's not going to be a secret one. The word rapture or the idea of rapture comes from the loudest scripture in the Bible that we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17. It says, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's the word or the idea of rapture. But notice when the rapture is happening, the trumpet is sounding. The Lord is shouting, the dead in Christ are rising up out of the graves. So I believe in a rapture. But I believe in a visible rapture, an audible rapture, a glorious rapture. Amen? The Bible doesn't talk about a secret one. Well, then if that's the case, where do people get this idea of a secret rapture or a second chance from? They get it from two misunderstood scriptures that are completely taken out of context and human assumptions are added to it. And I want to show you those scriptures tonight. Remember, this is important. Jesus warned us, beware that you're not deceived by the counterfeit. And so notice one of the scriptures people use at times to try to justify or teach a secret rapture. It's the one found in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a what? Thief of the night. And people read that and they assume that that means secretly and silently. He's coming as a thief in the night. That means secretly and silently. Well, friends, have you ever had a thief come in the night? Have you ever been that thief that came in the night? <laughs> I've been on both, side of, both sides of that equation, and I'm thankful for the mercy of God. But you know, when a thief comes in the, not, in the night, they don't always come secretly and silently, but they do come suddenly and unexpectedly. And by the way, it doesn't say that the Lord is coming as a thief in the night. What does it say? It says the day of the Lord. In other words, it's not referring to how the Lord is coming, but rather when he comes, the timing of his coming, the day of the Lord. That timing will come like a thief in the night, not 
secretly and silently, but rather suddenly and unexpectedly. How do we know? Because if we read the rest of the verse, it makes it plain. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great silence, with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. So yes, the timing, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, but it's going to be very loud. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, it says. So it can't be referring to a secret rapture. And so if the Lord is coming, the, day, the timing of his coming is, coming is like a thief in the night, suddenly and unexpectedly, to whom will his coming be like that? To those who are not watching and praying and ready for his return. Jesus said it like this. In Matthew 24, verse 43 and 44, please write it down. Notice with me on the screen. Jesus said, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have done what? He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour, a timing that you do not what? That you do not expect. That's what it means. His return will come like a thief in the night, suddenly, unexpectedly, but to those who are not watching and waiting and praying for his return. I don't know about you, but I, I plan on watching and praying and being ready. Amen? So for those who are watching and praying and being ready for his return, it's not going to come upon us like a thief in the night, but rather like a husband coming to pick up his bride. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, But you, brethren... Paul is speaking to the Christian church, the believers. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You see, it's only those who are in darkness that the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. But for those who are walking in the light, it's not going to overtake us like a thief. And friends, how do we walk in the light? Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We want to walk in the light of the word of God. Now I want you to notice this scripture on the screen. It tells us that those who are in darkness shall be overtaken like a thief. That word overtake. Over what? Overtake. Those who are in darkness will be overtaken by the coming of the Lord. And that reminds me of another misunderstood passage that people try to use to justify some kind of secret rapture. Or a second chance. And that's the expression when Jesus said, one shall be taken and the other shall be left. That's a famous expression. And that's where the Left Behind series borrows its title from. When Jesus said, one shall be taken and the other shall be left. And so we want to find out what exactly does that mean. And when we read it in its context, the meaning is plain. So take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 24 as we take a closer look at this misused and misunderstood scripture in the Christian world today. Let's go Matthew 24. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. We're going to the 24th chapter, which is Jesus' discourse on the signs of the times, the end of the world, and his return. And in this context, he makes the expression, one shall be taken and the others shall be left. So Matthew 24, beginning with verse 40, when you get there, please say, Amen. Here's Jesus' words, Matthew 24, 40. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. 
two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. There it is, friends. That's the expression. Many people have read this verse surfacely, and they have assumed. What word did, did I just say? They have assumed that the one that is taken are the righteous ones, and they're taken secretly and silently to heaven. And they have assumed that the ones that are left are the wicked, and they're left behind in the world alive with a second chance. Well, friends, does it say that those who are taken are taken secretly and silently, and those who are left are left with another chance? Does the verse say that? No, friends. So we can't add something into the Bible that, that, that's not there. We can't do that, friends, and we can't go based on a human assumption. We have to let the context clear up whatever confusion there is. And so here's what we want to do right now, friends. We want to find out what does Jesus mean when he says this? We're going to ask the question, who are taken? And in what way are they taken? And we're also going to ask, who is left? And in what way are they left? The context clears up the confusion. Well, first of all, let me ask you the question. How many of you want to be taken? Can I see your hands? All right. How many of you want to be left? Can I see your hands? Wow, we got a difference of opinion here tonight. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me ask that again. How many of you want to be taken? Come on, raise your hand if you want to be taken. Okay. How many of you want to be left? Raise your hand if you want to be left. Wow. How many of you don't know what you want? All right. All right. Well, tonight we're going to find out as we read the context if we want to be taken or if we want to be left. And I'm going to ask you that question afterwards, see if you change your mind. The context clears up the confusion. Here's the context. You can see it in your Bible. It's also on the screen. The preceding verses, Jesus is making a parallel between the last day and Noah's day during the time when the world was destroyed by a flood. And here's what it says in verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, what happened during Noah's day? Who was taken in Noah's day? And who was left in Noah's day? Well, let's let Jesus tell us. Verse 38, the very next verse says, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. My friends, let me ask you a question. Who is they that Jesus is referring to that continue to eat and drink and marry and live carelessly as if the flood wasn't coming? Who is they? Is that the righteous or is that the wicked? My friends, that's the wicked. They continue to live carelessly until the very day that Noah entered into the ark. They weren't preparing. They're living life as if nothing was going to take place. Until the day came and Noah entered into the ark. And then it says, the next verse, and knew not until the... Un, and knew not until the flood came and uh, took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. But friends, in the context of the passage, who is taken? Is it the righteous or is it the wicked that's taken? Who, is the, who are the ones that knew not until the flood came and was taken by the flood? It was the wicked, friends. Those who were eating and drinking and marrying and giving a marriage. Those who were living their lives carelessly in an indifferent way. They were the ones that were taken by the flood. Some of you are like, what? What does it mean to be taken? 
I want you to notice, let's compare this with the synoptic gospel of Luke and see how the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write the very same passage. Write it down. Luke 17 verse 27 says that the flood came and what? Destroyed them all. Matthew says that the flood came and took them all away. Luke says the flood came and destroyed them all. Why? Because to be taken and to be destroyed in this context is synonymous. It means to be overtaken, overwhelmed, overcome, and destroyed by the flood. That's what it means, friends, in this context. You see, sometimes, or a lot of times, we think that taken is a positive thing, but we have to read the context. In this context, taken is negative. It's the wicked that was overtaken, overcome, destroyed by the flood. And so if it was the wicked that were taken by the flood, then who was left after the flood? It was the righteous that were left. Not in the sense that they're left in this world without any hope and loss, but in the sense that they survived the flood. The righteous were the ones that were remain, remaining after the flood. The biblical word that is used is the word remnant, the rest the leftovers, those who remain. You see, not every time in the Bible is taken positive. I want you to notice these scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, the Bible says, But these as natural brute beasts, made to be what? Taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish. Taken to destruction. That's the same thing as overtaken, overwhelmed, and overcome. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, write it down. It says, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That doesn't sound like a second chance, friends. When the Lord Jesus returns, the brightness and the glory of his presence is going to be so overwhelming that the wicked who have lived their lives in spiritual darkness are going to be t overtaken. They're going to be destroyed, not taken to another location, but rather simply destroyed. But some of you are scratching your head and you're like, wow, are you sure about that? Well, let's really make sure, shall we? Let's go back to the synoptic gospel of Luke because even the disciples, when Jesus said this expression, they weren't sure about it either. So notice, Luke 17, verse 34 through 36. Please write it down. Luke 17, verse 34 through 36. Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you, in that night, there shall be two in one where? Bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two shall be in the field. In the where? In the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. And they, the disciples, answered and said to him, Where, Lord? You see, even the disciples weren't too sure what Jesus meant when he said that expression. And so what did they do when they did not understand? They asked the question. They did not assume or try to interpret Jesus' words in their own human understanding like many people do today. They asked the question and they let Jesus explain it himself. So that's what we should do. Where, Lord? Now, here's the thing. Either the disciples are asking, where are the taken taken? Or they're asking, where are the left left? Right? They're either asking of one of these two groups. They're either asking, where are the taken taken? Or they're asking, where are the left left? Who do you think they're asking about? They have to be asking about where are the taken taken. You know why? Because it's abundantly obvious where the left are left. 
they are left where they were to begin with. And Jesus made it clear where they were. They were in the bed, at the grinding mill, and in the field. And so if they're left, they only can be left where they were to begin with. Is that clear? So they have to be asking, where are the taken taken? And here's the answer of Jesus, the next verse. Verse 37, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. You remember the Feast of the Fowls we read about in Revelation 19? That's what happens, friends. Where are the taken taken? The Feast of the Fowls, they're overtaken by the coming of Christ, and now the fowls begin to feast upon their flesh. You see, my friends, it's so important for us to read the context to know what the truth really is. Jesus is making a parallel to that of, of the last day, to that of Noah's day. And in Genesis 7, verse 23, it says, And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground. And Noah only, what? Remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. Friends, who was left after the flood came? It was Noah and his family. It was the righteous that were left. Not in the sense that they were left and lost, but rather in the sense that they survived it. They overcame. They were the remnants, the ones that remain when the waters had settled. In Isaiah chapter 24, verse 6, Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men, what? Left. Few men left. Why few? Well, friends, it's a relative few because in reality it's going to be a great multitude that will be left, a great multitude that will be saved. But why does it say few? Because Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Why few? Not because it's hard to find, it's easy to find, but it's few because most people would rather walk the easy, broad, popular way rather than the straight and narrow way. But if we choose that straight and narrow way with Jesus, he promises us, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can you say amen? And that leads to us being those who remain after he comes the second time. Now we know that, that when Jesus comes, the wicked are overtaken, they're destroyed, and the righteous are left. But they're not left in this world forever because we know shortly after that we, we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So we have to remember that distinction. Here's another verse. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. In that day, talking about the return of Christ, shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is what? Left in Zion, and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even everyone that's written among the living in Jerusalem. And so we see very clearly According to the context, comparing Scripture with Scripture, those who are taken are not the righteous but the wicked. They're overtaken, overwhelmed, destroyed by the coming of the Lord. Those who are left are the righteous, not in the sense that they're left in this world, but they survived it. And yes, they'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Friends, how many of you want to be amongst those who will survive the second coming of Christ? How many of you want to be left? You thought you'd never say that, right? <laughs> how many of you still want to be taken? Let me see your hands. All right, well, if you still want to be taken, we need to, we need to talk some more afterwards and, and reason together. But friends, we don't want to be taken. We want to be left. Do you see, friends, how the devil just switched it? He just flopped the whole thing. 
and many sincere, beautiful Christians have believed the exact opposite of what Jesus was actually saying. Why? Because instead of reading the Bible carefully for themselves, we're listening to what the popular teachings of theologians are. And that's why, friends, I repeat, make sure that you study the Bible for yourself. You can't just read one or two or three or four verses to know what the truth is on any given subject. This is the correct way to study the Bible, friends. If you want to know what the truth is on any subject, you got to study the Bible from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. You have to gather all the corroborating verses concerning that subject. You have to read all of those verses in its context. And then you compare Scripture with Scripture with Scripture, and only as you study the Bible in that way would the truth emerge in a very clear, concise way, too clear for us to be confused by the counterfeit. Can you say amen? And that's why we go from verse to verse to verse. Because all the truth on any subject is not found in just one or two verses, but only as we gather the, the, all the evidence of what the scriptures teach. Even though there are over 36 different authors that were inspired to write the 66 books of the Bible, it was one divine author behind it all that was revealing truth in different ways. But it all comes together as we study it together. Amen? And so, for every truth that God has, Satan has a counterfeit. You see, if I gave you a glass of poison and said, would you like to have a drink? No one would drink that. No one is going to fall for a glass of 100% poison. But how about a glass of orange juice with a few drops of poison? That's more dangerous, friends, because we don't know. It looks good. It looks healthy, but it's deadly. And that, my friends, is the nature of deception. And that's why let's go to the Word of God to find out what the truth really is. Amen? And so we see, friends, the return of Jesus is literal, it's personal, it's visible, it's audible, it's decisive. No such thing as a second chance after Jesus returns. Probation is closed. And here's the good news, friends. Jesus will not return until everyone has a chance. That's what the gospel teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. Everyone will have an opportunity before he actually comes. So that by the time he comes, that's it, friends. You see, our God is a patient God. He's a merciful God. The Bible says that the Lord delights in mercy, but he's also a God of justice, and he must put an end to sin. And if we choose to cling to it, that's our choice, and God loves us so much that he will not violate our freedom to choose our own destiny. Does that make sense? So he will come. Yes, his mercy is, it, it bears long with us. The Bible says that God is long-suffering. Do you know what the word long-suffering means? What does long-suffering mean? It means to suffer long. Yes, it means patience. But in the patience, you know, God is suffering. You see, we're not the only ones suffering from sin, friends. God suffers from sin more than we do. He suffers, friends. And he's willing to bear the suffering so that we could be saved. But if we choose against him, we tie his hands. And he's a loving God that lets us choose our own destiny. And then he, so he comes. And the Bible says in Revelation 22, verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust how? Still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy how? 
Still, he who is righteous, let him be righteous. Still, he who is holy, let him be holy. Still, and behold, I am coming quickly. So notice, friends, by the time Jesus comes, whatever condition you find yourself in, you will remain in that condition still. And there's only two groups. Either you're going to be unjust and filthy or you're going to be righteous and holy. There's no middle ground, friends. No neutrality in spirituality. By the time Jesus comes, everyone will decide for or against. Only two groups. And whatever condition you're in, you will remain there still. No such thing as a second chance. And friends, none of us are righteous. None of us are holy. The only way we can be righteous and holy is when we receive by faith he who is righteous and holy. That's Jesus. And I want to be a part of that group. How about you? Amen? Remember, Jesus was making a parallel between Noah's day and the last day. And in the days of Noah, there was one simple, life-saving gospel message that was preached by Noah. And for those who heard it, believed it, and responded in faith to it, they were saved. You know what the message of Noah was? It was a very simple, life-saving message. What was, what was, the, what was the salvation message of Noah? Get in the ark. That was it, friends. Get in the ark. Get in the ark. And those who heard that gospel call and responded in faith, getting on the ark, were saved when the water fell. And friends, when the flood came, that boat was preserved in the ark. Now let me ask you a question. Was Noah and his family raptured out of the flood? No, friends. They went through the flood. They were in the tribulation, but they were preserved during that time. Why? Because they were in the ark. But you know something interesting about that ark? When God told Noah to build the ark, he gave specific instructions. And in those instructions, God told Noah that he wasn't to put a sail. He wasn't to bring oars or a motor. In other words, all those who got on board the ark had no control over it. You see, friends, if we want to be saved, we got to get into an ark with no sails, no oars, and no motor. You see, most people are willing to get on an ark with some sails and some oars and a motor so that we can direct our own course and we can have some kind of control over our own lives. But no, friends, if we're going to be saved, Jesus must be in full control. You see, those who were in the ark, the only thing they could do was abide. They couldn't roll themselves out of trouble by their own efforts. The only thing they were called to do is get on and stay on. It's the same thing with, with our experience with the Lord, friends. The ark represents Christ. And he wants us to abide in him. God doesn't need our help. He needs our permission. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. You see, the sinful heart of man wants to have control. We want to direct our own course. We want to make decisions for ourselves. But no, friends, God must be in full control. And the good news, friends, is that he is a God that we can trust. He's a God that knows what's best. And he has our best interest in mind all the time. Amen? But there's another reason that ark floated. God told Noah to overlay the ark on the inside and on the outside with pitch. With what? And that pitch 
is what sealed all the cracks between the wood and it made the ark floodproof. And so all those who were in the ark were under the pitch. And as a result, they were preserved. They were sealed during that time of trouble. They were under the pitch. Now, friends, do you know what that word pitch means in the Hebrew? The word pitch in the Hebrew literally means atonement. What did I say? It was literal pitch that made the ark floodproof. But in the Hebrew, the same word pitch literally means atonement. In other words, all those who were under the atonement were sealed and saved. They had a shelter in a time of storm. And friends, that life-saving message in Noah's day, which was very simple and profound, get in the ark, is the same life-giving message in the last days. The life-saving message in these last days is get in the ark of the covenant. The most holy place, the secret place of the Most High, it's where we experience the full atonement. That's where Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen? And so I call upon you in Jesus' name. While the door is still open, get in the ark, friends. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we might experience the seal of the living God, that atonement that makes us fireproof in these last days. It's a beautiful message of salvation. And so as we get ready to bring out a few final points, my friends, in these last days, Jesus is appealing to individuals. He's speaking to men and women and boys and girls to get ready for the coming of Christ. But if we ignore his voice and put it off and procrastinate and, and think to ourselves, I'm going to wait for another chance, then his coming will come upon us like a thief in the night, as an overwhelming surprise. The secret about the secret rapture, friends, is that it's a lie. What left behind, really left behind, was the truth of God's word. And the reason why that theology is so dangerous is because it, it gives people a false sense of security. People think to themselves, well, if I'm not ready for the, when the rapture comes, thank God I'll have another chance. And people are banking on another chance that will not happen, friends. Because the reality is, is we have already received our second chance our third and our fourth and our fifth chance. Every single day that we wake up is another chance that God gives to us to get ready, get ready, get ready because Jesus is coming again. There is no security, friends, in a non-existent second chance. There is no security in church membership or head knowledge or your moral uprightness. There is only security in Jesus. He is the ark of safety. So I appeal to you, friend, get to know Jesus. Spend time with him for yourself. Don't pat yourself on the back that you go to church every week because let me tell you, the devil goes to church every single week. It's more than just a one day a week experience. It's day by day resting in the arms of God, trusting him for our salvation, leaning upon him and not our own understanding and surrendering our lives to Christ. Last truth of the return of Christ is that it's going to be a glorious and joyous event. It's going to be a happy day. And notice what the bride of Christ will say when she sees her husband face to face. Isaiah 25 verse 9, it shall be said in that day. Let's read it together, shall we? Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. 
this is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's going to be a happy day. Families separated by death are reunited in life. Babies who have died in their infancy placed back into their parents' arms. Oh, what a glorious day when we receive our brand new body. A day that we see Jesus face to face. My friends, Jesus is coming again. He brought you to this seminar tonight so that we could get ready for the wedding day. And I'll never forget my wedding day. When I got engaged to my girlfriend, my, my ex-girlfriend, my current wife, we set an appointed time that we would get married. September 4th, 2005, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that was the appointed time. And in the months leading up to that special day, oh, there was great preparations that were made. The invitations were sent out to our family and our friends. The colors were chosen. The menu was set. The decorations and the time had come the week of. And then the day before and that night before my wedding day, I could barely sleep. I was so excited. The day has come. And I woke up early the next morning. I was the first one up. All my groomsmen were still sleeping. I was up. And I went to the place that we were married. I was one of the first ones there at around 11 o'clock in the morning. I was ready. I had my tuxedo on. Here's a picture of my wife and I on that day. And I'll never forget. One o'clock came and the anticipation is just growing. The guests are show, are, are, have showed up. The decorations, everything is set. The colors, are. it was an outdoor wedding on the top of the mountain overlooking the north shore of Oahu. A beautiful Garden of Eden setting and everyone had showed up one o'clock and the food, you could smell it. It smelled so good and everything was set. And then 1.45 came and 15 more minutes and we start to get to our positions. And then 1.55 and then 2 o'clock and then 2.10 and 2.20 and 2.30. And we didn't get married until 2.45. Forty-five minutes late. Why? Not because I wasn't ready. I was ready. <laughs> it's not because we're waiting for the groomsmen. They were there. The bridesmaids were, were, were present. We weren't waiting for the food or the guests. There was only, everything was set. There was only one reason why I didn't get married at the appointed time. Only one reason. And you know what that is? It's because the wife was not yet ready. But you know what they say, better late than never. <laughs> and I remember seeing her for the first time in the wedding dress, walking down that long aisle. And the joy that I experienced was so overwhelming. The time had come that we would be made one. And I can just imagine how Jesus feels. He longs for the wedding day to happen. He longs to be with you, friend. He longs to see you with the wedding dress on. But he's not yet returned. Why? Because he's giving the wife more time to get ready. Probation has been extended, friends, because Jesus can't imagine heaven without you. So he has given us more time. Put on the dress. 
Tonight, friends, what is stopping you from putting on that dress? What hinders you heavenward? What stands between you and Jesus? My friends, when the Lord comes, all the things that occupy our time and our mind here that are not really important are going to fade away into eternal insignificance. It's not going to matter our work, our social status. It's not going to matter how much money we have in our bank accounts. The only thing that will matter is do you have the wedding dress? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father in heaven, Lord, tonight we've heard a very beautiful truth. And you said in your word, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And Lord, tonight we want to respond to that promise. We want to be there, Lord. We want to be ready. And Lord, tonight we pray that you'll search our hearts. What is in our lives, Lord, that will cause us to not be ready? Whatever it is, Lord, give us the grace, the courage, the willingness to let go and let you take full control of our hearts. Lord, I know that there are individuals here tonight that have not yet made a decision to accept the proposal of the cross. Individuals here tonight that are living their lives selfishly for self and they have not yet made a decision that they want to be ready for the coming of Christ and today tonight Lord I pray that those individuals will take a stand for you that tonight that they would choose to get in the ark give them courage now as we make this invitation and as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed as your heart is open to God in prayer Oh, my friend, Jesus is coming. And if you have not yet made a decision to surrender your life to him, if you've not yet come to that point of responding to that wedding proposal of the cross, but tonight you want to say, yes, Lord, you're a God that's worth loving, a God that's worth serving. I open my heart to you. And I pray that you will come in and that you would cover me with the righteousness, the wedding dress, and that tonight, Lord, you would make me ready for your soon coming. If you'd like to make that decision, either for the first time or in a recommitment to the Lord Jesus, I'm going to ask you to stand where you are right now as a commitment to God. By standing here saying, Lord, I want to be ready for the wedding. I don't want to be overtaken. I don't want to be lost. I want to be ready to meet my God face to face. If so, stand to your feet. Either for the first time or in a recommitment. And say yes to Jesus. Now this decision may entail some things that you need to give to God. That perhaps you've been holding on to. 
things that are separating you from the Lord, things that are distracting you and deterring you from heaven. I don't know what it is that's between you and the Lord. But tonight, as you go home, you're going to take some time to search your heart, to take inventory of your lives, and you're going to let Jesus take his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords on the throne of your life. God bless you, friend. You've made the right decision. While the door is open, we are entering into that ark, covered by the pitch, the atonement, safe and secure in Christ. Father in heaven, Lord, we stand not because we are strong. We stand because we're weak and we need your strength. So Lord, take our hearts tonight. You've heard the invitation, Lord, and these have responded. They're wanting to give their lives to you fully. I pray for those who are doing it for the first time. Give them a peace that they'd never experienced before. Give them joy like a fountain and love like an ocean. And I pray, Lord, that whatever is standing between them and you, that all those enemies will be vanquished and all those obstacles will be removed. Bless those who are committing themselves to you for the first time. And Lord, for the, for, for the rest who are standing in a recommitment, bless us as well, Lord. Give us faith that endures every trial the enemy will bring. And we pray, Lord, that when you come in the clouds of heaven, that we will be amongst that group who will say, Lord, this is our God, our King, our husband. Thank you so much, Lord, that you died on the cross naked so that we might be clothed with the wedding dress. We thank you for it. We accept it tonight. Forgive us for our sins, for they are many. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We look forward to your return. For we ask this and we pray this. In the wonderful name of Jesus, let the bride of Christ say, Amen.